I don't know how you feel about this, but you know, whenever I see a picture of Jesus Christ in a secular magazine, I shudder. Because I know that Jesus that is presented in these magazines will not command our worship. He will not be qualified to be our savior. He will be stripped down by scholars, chewed to bit, dissected and analyzed, discussed. He will be no frail Jesus and at cost reduced to a historical figure. I don't know how many of you have heard of Jesus Seminar. In fact, you can go to your computer this afternoon and just punch Jesus Seminar and you'll find out what it's all about. Jesus Seminar gained a lot of publicity a few years ago, and they still do. When Jesus Seminar began, they deliberately says, we want to get this to the media. People need to know. It's time that we took what the scholars are doing and we want to spread it around the media to the common person. So this is what they did. These so-called intellectuals and scholars, they met in California. You're not going to believe this, but it's true. They had plastic beads. And they drop it into a dish. That's the way they vote on the sayings of Christ to see how many believe Jesus said this and how many believe Jesus said that. In other words, if you drop a red bead into the bowl, that's Jesus. Pink means it sounds like Jesus. Gray is, well, maybe. Black bead is, well, there's been some mistakes. Jesus would never have said that. And at the end of the day, only 18% of the words of Jesus they thought was actually believed. Thank God for these intellectuals, huh? I know there are tens and thousands and millions of people who read articles like that in Time Magazine, and not counting of how many people which watch History Channel and National Geo Channel, or National Geographic Channel, and Discovery Channel. So they come to the conclusion that the historical Jesus was a mere man who went around doing marvelous and wonderful things. Yes, they admit, he actually did exist, but Christ of faith, well, even though he existed, and even though many people may believe those miracles, he's a legend. And all of the myths that develop around that historical Jesus is nothing more than a legend. And that's how these channels portray him. And actually, I was watching those series on History Channel, a uh, National Geographic Channel, and Discovery Channel that really got me burned up to motivate me to do these series. Now you know. Back when Jesus Seminar came out with a book, in the introduction of that book, it says Jesus Christ can no longer command our respect and belief in him since we have been able to see the stars through Galileo Telescope. 
In other words, what they were saying is this, because of the fact that we are modern people, we can't just believe these miracles. And that's their presupposition number one. But number two, here's what happened. As these various scholars wrote their own biography of historical Jesus, they came up with so many contradictory accounts these accounts are basically biographies of the scholars, not of Christ, because they told us what the scholars could or could not believe. For example, some scholars said that Jesus they came up with is a counterculture of hippie of the time. Now, if you live in the 60s, you know what that's like. And so some scholars says Jesus was no more than just a hippie of his time, a rebel against a society. He was an ancient hippie living off the land smelling flowers and talking about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. Other scholars says, well, no, we kind of disagree with that. He wasn't a hippie, but he was a brilliant Jewish reactionary. Other scholars says, well, no, we're not, we're not quite sure about that extreme, but that he was a charismatic rabbi beyond his time. Still others says, are you ready for this? Still others says he was a homosexual magician who practiced magic, who had a great following because of his ability. Now, I know a few magicians hanging around with them. They would love to learn how he did that trick, feeding 5,000 people with two barley loaves of bread, two fishes and five barley loaves of bread, and feeding 5,000 people and still have leftover. I don't know of any magician who would want, who would want to learn that trick. Wouldn't that make you mad? So the question now is, whose portrait are we going to believe? As I mentioned, it's not the portrait of Jesus, it's the portrait of these scholars who themselves disagree among themselves who this Jesus really is. And I find that funny and nonsense and downright silly. You all, you all heard of Bishop Spawn, haven't you? Look it up in your internet. Better yet, don't bother. He writes that Jesus was, and this is, I don't even know why this guy is called Bishop. He should be out of the ministry, so-called. This is what he says. He writes that Jesus was conceived when Mary was raped. And Bishop Spawn has all these theories, and he says, I love my Bible. I want people to know that I love my Bible, and I want to keep it away from the fundamentalists that it was not written to be taken literally, but to inspire my faith. And I read that and says, what? Here's a man that's supposed to be a brilliant, intelligent guy. I love my Bible. I want to keep it away from the fundamentalist. But it was not written to be taken literally, but to inspire my faith. I hear that and I said, faith in what? If the Bible is full of lies, then exactly in what sense is it going to inspire my faith? 
Now here's the point. What happened in the minds of these scholars finally is that they have concluded something, and that is the portrait of Jesus in the New Testament is a whole cloth, and they couldn't find a seam that separate from the historical Jesus from the Christ of faith, Christ with a miracle. You would accept it all or deny it all. And there is no seam. So in the light of the fact they came with this numerous contradictions and subjective opinions, many scholars now, here's what they're doing, they're just throwing their hands up in the air and says, we don't know anything about this man. You see, they were faced with this thing. Either you accept the portrait of, uh, uh, in the New Testament as it stands, or else you simply lose, or rather, you simply toss the whole thing and simply say, we don't know anything about this man. Of course, the New Testament have all kinds of manuscripts of evidence. But if you're going to say, I'm not going to accept miraculous Christ, no matter what, then the best thing you can say is simply, I don't know anything about him. I could accept that. Now remember, whenever you read anything like this from these scholars, listen carefully. It has very little to do with scholarship. It has everything to do with unbelief. That's fundamental unwillingness to grant Jesus any miraculous quality. That's what it amounts to. So, but this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Apostle Paul faced the very same issue during his time. And wherever he traveled, he was challenged by the skeptics and the agnostics and the atheists of his time. So let's park for a few seconds in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And I want to encourage you to look at the text with me and read along with me. It just make more sense that way. And this is a challenge that Paul faced, and this is the answer he gives. And I can see Paul doing this and saying this. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive and which you stand by, which also you say you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believe in vain, verse 3, for I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now you need to pause for a moment and ask yourself, what scripture is he talking about? Well, you need to understand the New Testament has not, is not in existence at this period. It was in the process. So what scripture is Paul talking about? Well, actually, he's talking about the Old Testament. And you find this in Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11, and Isaiah 53. That's the scripture he's talking about in the Old Testament. And that, notice, and he continues saying, and that he was buried, and that is Christ, that's mentioned in Psalm 16, 8 through 11, Isaiah 53. And Paul says that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
And, that, and then he testified. And he says, and, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelves, and after that he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep, or some have passed away. Look at verse 7 very carefully. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then verse 8, then last of all, it's like Paul saying, I want you to know, brethren, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Paul is saying, if you don't believe me and what I'm saying is true, then ask them who are still living because there are some who are still living who were the eyewitnesses of his existence. Ask them who actually saw him. How many cultic or religious cults can say that? And Paul says, I'm talking about an actual historical reality. There were eyewitnesses of people who have seen Jesus and they have seen his death and amazingly they have seen his resurrection and they have seen his miracles. Yes, we still have those people living and they are the eyewitnesses. So if you don't believe me, you go and ask them. Wow. And then when you analyze the New Testament like that, we discover that it has a mark of authenticity, historicity, and accuracy. And then we come to the miraculous Christ. There he is. You either accept him or you deny him. Another reason why I believe the Bible is God's word is because of Christ. You see, having come to Jesus in the New Testament, we now ask the question, what does Jesus think of the Old Testament? What was his opinions of the stories many scholars tell us that didn't happen? If Jesus is our Savior, is he also our teacher? Is he also the one whose opinions are valuable to us? Well, I hope so. He believed in the historicity of the Old Testament. For those of you who've been ignoring, and listen carefully, for those of you who've been ignoring your Old Testament, our Lord Jesus believed in the Old Testament to his detail. For example, what about the story of Adam and Eve? Did Jesus believe in the Old Testament? The story of Adam and Eve? That's mentioned, 19, well, look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 5. Matthew 19, 4 through 5. And I realize this is talking about regarding divorce. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 4 through 5. And Jesus answered, said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning and made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Where did that come from? Now, he doesn't mention Adam and Eve in this particular verse. 
Obviously, he believed in their existence because that was quoted from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, word for word. Whoa. Jesus believed in the Old Testament because that's where it came from. There's an argument among liberal theologians who says, I can't accept the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Well, that's just too bad. It seems very clear that Christ did. Now, let me share with you another one. Because we can spend all day, but we, you don't have the time, and I don't feel that good anyway. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Let, let me share with you another one. It's a story of Jonah. You actually believe Jonah was swallowed by a fish. When I was in Michigan, I was talking to a guy. He was in his mid-20s. And, and I was telling him about the Lord, and he says, you know, I don't know. He says, first of all, we don't have a Bible. I never grew up with a Bible in our home. And he was being honest, and I appreciate that. And then I was telling him about Jonah, and he said, did that really happen? I thought it was just a fairy tale. And it dawned on me that we have a whole generation of young people like that. It's scary. It's frightening. Well, here's a story of Jonah. <laughs> you actually believe Jonah was swallowed by a fish? Come on. Well, look with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Matthew 12, 39. There are two things about the book of Jonah that is very difficult to accept. One is that Jonah was swallowed by a large fish. Sound like out of a comic book. And the other is he preached in Nineveh, and he wasn't a very good preacher. In fact, if he was here, the church called him to be a pastor here, he'd probably be fired three weeks later. I mean, this man, all he did was he kept repeating the same thing. He repeated, uh, in fact, this is what he said. Repent, or in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. That's all he said. He repeated that thing, same thing, over and over and over again. Repent, or in 40 days you're going to be overthrown. And guess what? He wasn't very happy saying it either. I mean, he did it grudgingly. He didn't want to do it. But he didn't want to go back to the belly of the fish. So he had no choice. And there's a reason why he didn't want to do it. And that's for another sermon. He was really upset with God that he would be that merciful. And so Jonah preached and everybody repented. And you read that and says, did this really happen? Or was it just a good bedtime story? Well, look at Matthew 12, verse 38 and on down. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to you except the sign of a prophet Jonah. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be for three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And this is Jesus speaking. And the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, indeed greater than Jonah 
is here. And who is he talking about? Greater Jonah is here. So you say, well, I can't believe Jonah was swallowed by a huge fish. I can't believe Jonah preached in the whole city, including the king, repented. Well, what are you going to do? Are we going to believe those who say it didn't happen? Or are we going to go with Jesus who believe it did happen? You look at all these stories do you have trouble with God's judgment with Sodom and Gomorrah? And that issue always comes up. Do you have trouble with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Believing that it really did happen, that God literally just burned up the whole population? Well, Jesus believed it. What about Lot's wife? Talk about a Amazing story here. What about Lot's wife? That's mentioned in Genesis chapter 19, verse 26. Do you believe that she looked back and at that split second she turned into a pillar of salt? How crazy can you be to believe such a story like that? Well, I heard about a lady driving on the highway and, and looked back and turned into a light pole. Ooh. It took me a long time to think of that one. And you say, well, I can't believe she looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. But Jesus believed it. It's mentioned in Luke chapter 17, verse 29 through 32. Jesus believed it. So what are we going to do with his view of the Old Testament? Oh, we don't have to elaborate on this verse, but in Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 34, 37, a young lawyer comes to him and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. What are the great commandments? And what did Jesus do? Well, he stringed two commandments from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. Look at verse 37 of Matthew 22. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. That's what he was quoting from. I mean, Jesus knew the Old Testament word for word. He knew the whole book. I mean, he's God, of course. But he was quoting Matthew chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Now look at verse 39 of Matthew. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So there you are, for those of you who don't think Old Testament belong in the Bible anymore. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. Luke chapter 18.31, this is Jesus speaking. Look at Luke 18.31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophet concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And when he was confronted by Satan in the wilderness, guess what? Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, what did he say three times? It is written. What is written? Well, the New Testament certainly wasn't written then. It was in the process. So what was written? Well, Christ was referring, once again, to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 through 14, referring to the Old Testament. When Christ says, it is written, it is written, it is written, that is made in the Old Testament. 
Deuteronomy 8.3 and Deuteronomy 16.13 through 14. He was quoting that. For Jesus, if the scripture says it, God said it, God said it, then that settles it. And that's how clear it was. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. I want you to see the extent to which Jesus Christ was willing to lay his reputation online for the accuracy of the scriptures. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and this is interesting, Matthew 5, 17 through 18, our Lord Jesus says, do not think that I come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Look at verse 18. For surely I say to you till heaven, and this is very important. For surely I say to you till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. When Christ speaks of one jot or one tittle, it's a, there is a letter. It's the smallest letter in Hebrew alphabet. There is a letter there's actually a letter in Hebrew, which is the size of our comma. And that is what Jesus is referring to, just a stroke, like a crossing of a T. What Jesus is saying is that none of this will be tossed out until it's all fulfilled. When we say, I believe in the inerrancy word of God in our bylaw constitution, and many fundamental churches have that. I believe in the inerrancy of God's word. What that means is this. I believe in God's word without error. That's what you're saying. I believe in the word of God without error in the original manuscripts. Now, as manuscripts have been copied, there are some changes. And I will comment on that later in the latter part of this series. The point is the original manuscripts are inspired by God right to the dotting of the I, to the crossing of the T. And Jesus believed that. In the 10th chapter of John, Jesus is using some rabbinical argumentation. And this is really good, but you really have to listen to get it. Okay? So bear with me. 10th chapter of John, Jesus is using some rabbinical argumentation. And people who come knocking on your door by two, this is going to help you. People who come knocking on your door by two will use this phrase, use this passage, trying to convince you that Christ isn't God. So this will be a helpful hit for you, for those who claim Christ isn't God. And many of Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, in fact, they all because they've been trained to do this. We use this passage to prove to you that Christ is in God. John chapter 10, verse 31, starting with verse 31. <clears throat> then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, and this is what Jesus said, Many good works I have shown you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? Look at verse 33. And Jesus answered him saying, uh, rather the Jews answered him saying, for good works we do not stone you, 
but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now the Jehovah Witness, the Mormons love to use this verse to prove a point. Well, I think they got the message though. That's exactly what Jesus wants them to conclude. And in order to needle them a little bit, Jesus being Jesus, in order to needle them a little bit, Jesus used a form of a argumentation that is used back in those days. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? Ooh, this is going to be good. Is it not written in your law, you are gods? By the way, where did Jesus get this? Oh, we know he's God, but the point is, humanly speaking, where did Jesus get this? Three times, by the way, three times in the Old Testament, people are referred to as gods. Listen carefully, or you'll miss the point. For example, back in the Old Testament, the judges are referred to as gods. It's not because they are like God, but because they re represent God on this earth in their laws. So it says, you are God. Jesus really was quoting, are you ready for this? Psalms chapter 82, verse 1 and 2. That's what it says. Psalms 82, verse 1. Don't you love your Bible? 1 and 2. So he point, his point is, in the light of fact that your own law says this, that the judges can be God because he represents God, on this earth, you really don't have any right to accuse me of blaspheming because I says I am God. You see what Christ was doing? He was using this argument for discussion as to what was happening here. But notice what he says in verse 35, 36. If he call them gods to whom the word of the God came. Now this little parenthesis is very important. If your scriptures doesn't have that parenthesis, you got the wrong Bible. This parenthesis is very important. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and now this little parenthesis, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctifieth and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? What Christ is saying, if human judges can be called God, how then can you accuse me a blaspheming since I am the one who's been sent into the world by the Father as his son and calling myself to be God. Now what I want to point out is the word that's in my Bible that is in parenthesis, the scriptures cannot be broken. Now to break a scripture means that you know it. You ignore it. Do whatever you want. But Jesus says the scriptures cannot be broken. And he's not talking about just Psalms 82, verse 1 and 2. What he's saying is the scriptures cannot be broken. Now some of you might be asking, did Jesus have the same Old Testament as we today? The same book? And the answer is absolutely. Yes. Yes. And we'll talk more about that in a later part, why Hebrew Bible has only so many books and ours don't. And 
We'll talk about that in the later part of our series. But absolutely, the same text, same book. Let me share with you three concluding observations. Number one, Jesus believed in the infallibility of the Old Testament. That is to say, it's without error. To be fallible means mistakes. To be infallible means it's absolutely trustworthy. You can trust your Bible. It could not be broken. And Jesus said, right to the jot and right to the crossing of the T, right to the comma, it cannot be broken. Right to the jot and the tittle, right to the crossing of the T and the dotting of the I. Now, Jesus knew that the human authors of the Bible has all kinds of frailty, but when they wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, they wrote the words of God. Now, for those of you who might doubt, let me ask you a question. If Jesus believed in the infallibility of the Old Testament, that it was the Word of God, then why are you struggling with the infallibility of the Old Testament? If our Lord Jesus believe it, then that, isn't that good enough for us? I would think so. If our Lord Jesus believe it, that's good enough for me. Do we really know more about God, science, and history than Jesus did? I don't think so. Our Lord Jesus believed in the infallibility of the Old Testament right to the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. So start reading your Old Testament, folks. It's okay. It is okay to read your Old Testament. Secondly, our confidence in Christ determines our confidence in scriptures. If we have confidence in Jesus as our Savior, then we have confidence in Jesus as our teacher. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be naive. And I don't want to be accused of being non-intellectual or whatever. But to me, if Jesus says it, that settles it. I believe it. If he is the word of God, he came from the Father, and he gave us all kinds of evidence that he indeed did, then of course whatever Jesus believed, I want to believe I just wish I know more about him so I would know more about what I should believe. That's the kind of confidence we have in Christ. So what are you going to do with this Jesus for people who doubt who he claimed to be? You can close your Bible. I don't know how many of you took time to read Mein Kampf by Hitler. But Hitler made some fantastic claims. But he never had the nerve in his blood to say, John 14, 6, I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father by my, but by me. Hitler never had the nerve to say that. Lenin, the father of communism, came to Russia. And this is what Lenin says when he came to Russia. There will be enough bread for everyone if communism come to this country. Well, sounds like our politicians today, doesn't it? 
And that's what Lenin says. If communism come to Russia, there will be bread for everyone. But Lenin never, ever dared to say, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, John 6, 35. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Only Christ could say that. Mohammed said he descended from Abraham, but Mohammed never had the nerve to say, as our Christ said in John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. Freud never be Freud believed that someday psychiatrists would help everyone. Not too many people believe that today. But yet he never had the nerve to say in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, but I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Who would have the nerve to say such a thing like that? But Christ. The New Age people says they're going to be reincarnated. I don't think they are, but they never had the nerve to say. As in John uh, 11, uh, I think it's John 6, 11, 25, something like this. I am the resurrection and life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. So what do you do with man like this who is called Christ? What do you do with him? I believe that's found in John chapter 11, verse 25. So I ask you, make a decision about him. And if you make a decision about him, you're making a decision about not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. So our confidence, yes, our confidence in Christ determines our confidence in the Bible both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Finally, just a third conclusion here. You either read your Bible with your mind already made up, or you read your Bible in order to make up your mind. You read the Bible with the intention of letting it make up your mind. It's the difference between supernatural religion and natural humanistic religion. That's the bottom line. And the bottom line is, we always go back to the Bible because it is the revelation of God. It, and within it, we explode all the other books in the world. There's no other book like the Bible that you have in your hand. And if God has spoken and the word is God's word, you know, I, I look at this and I say, what a treasure we have. And some of you might ask him, as I started out the message, why are you preaching in this series? Well, because a year ago I was watching Geo Channel, and then later it was Discovery Channel, and then later it was History Channel, and I was so mad. And I was wondering how many of our people watch this and maybe after watching it have their faith shaken a little bit. And that night, I couldn't sleep. And 
I didn't have any vision from God. I wish I did. But I thought, you know, and I, I drove to the office and I kept thinking, I need to do a series on why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. There's another reason why I'm doing this. I want everybody here at Winfield Bible Chapel to be proud of your Bible. I want you to be proud of Jesus and to be proud of his word. I want to encourage you to take this book, be it just the New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs, which I carry quite often in my pocket, or the whole Bible, and put it on top of your desk where you work along with your other books. And be proud of it. When I was working years ago, I wasn't always a preacher. In fact, that wasn't even my thought, even when I was going to Bible school. But when I was working years ago in a factory at Alcoa in Davenport, Iowa, right there in Mississippi River, in the Quad Cities, I always took my Bible with me, a New Testament. I stuck it in my back pocket. And I always took it with me. And then when I was working, I just laid aside in the corner in, my, in the area that I worked in. Now, I didn't preach at the factory, and folks, you got you to understand this. They weren't paying me to preach. They were paying me to work. And I want to put in a good day's work for what they were paying me. Plus, it's a good, good example for Christ. And not loaf. I believe in putting your heart and mind so when you're employed by a company to do the best you can for the glory of God. I did it when I was working in factory and even with trucking and transcon uh, tract tractor and trailer up in uh, Houston, Texas, loading stuff. I mean, it was, a, it was a labor of a job, but I want to be the best. And I want to carry that through even in the ministry. I want to tell you something, folks. During the lunch break, I just would take my Bible out and just, just I, there were some verses I wanted to memorize, and I would sit in a corner by myself and go over some verses I wanted to memorize during the lunch break. I wasn't ashamed of the Bible. These guys that I work with, folks, I want you to know, they weren't ashamed of their Playboy magazine. They weren't ashamed, these girls, they weren't ashamed of their love story novels when they brought it with them during the lunch break. And at the airport, when you miss your flight, which is a common story today, and you're waiting the three, four hours, so you look around and see how many people are reading what. And I would tell you, I wouldn't be ashamed to pull out my Bible sitting there waiting for my flight, and I would dare anyone to come up and ask me a question. In fact, I want them to. And if they're not ashamed of their material, then why should we be ashamed with ours? Amen? Every once in a while when you're witnessing, you will have someone who's very cocky. And someone who just know it all. You ever experience people like that? They just know everything. And what do you do with people? You just walk away. That's what you do. Come, you know, what can you tell them? But every once in a while you come with someone that just knows everything. They've got, they got answers, pet answers for everything. They're all mouth and no brain. So you ask this person, if you were to die and God says, why should I let you in? 
what would he say to you? And let's say he's a very self-assured and says, well, I would say I've done the best I can. Of course, if there's God and is made known to me after death, I think he would let me in. Really? Yeah. And then I would say, well, what if God demand more than that? Then quite confidently, he would say, there's no doubt in my mind, because this is a pet answer to all these people. They said, there's no doubt in my mind that all you can do is the best you can, and he would let you in. Oh, really? But then I would say, if what you're saying is true, how would you know if you've done the best you can? And then he would respond, well, that's my opinion. Can you imagine that? If you got 30 different people together, you have 30 opinions, and here's a man telling me his opinion. And then he turns around and says, okay, uh, what about your opinion? And my response would be, don't you realize my opinion is no more important than your opinion? I mean, you know, we're all like little tiny little ants on a Rembrandt painting that is so huge, seeing only the color of the canvas and the roughness of the canvas and not understanding the entire picture. You see, we need to bring into discussion someone who is trustworthy and someone who's reliable, someone who has the qualification to speak on behalf of God. And there is somebody like that, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, more you start there, then you can speak about all the qualification of Jesus and all the reasons why his opinions and my opinions, so much, his opinion is so much better than ours, your opinion or my opinion. And I face this discussion quite often with unbelievers. And whenever they say, no matter what you believe, you will go to heaven, I would say, you know, I'm faced with a decision, though. I'm faced with a decision, and that is, do I believe what you just said? Or do I believe what Jesus said? When he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to my Father, except by me. Do I believe you, or do I believe what Christ says? And frankly, the decision isn't tough, as it might appear to be. I don't know about you, but I'm going with Jesus. He's got all the qualifications and evidence, and if Jesus says it, that settles it. And I believe it. And so I close by asking, are you going with Jesus? I think most of you have, if not all of you. And if just by chance you're here, if you haven't, I ask this nicely, what are you waiting for? How much more evidence do you need? I don't know what else to say. If Jesus says this is God's word, then it's God's word. And I'm going with Jesus no matter what my professor at college says, my friend says, and my co-worker says, and my neighbor says. I'm going with Jesus. 
And if you never believe in Jesus, and you're one of those people saying, oh, I'm doing the best I can, then friends, you're not going with Jesus because Jesus says, unless you believe in me, this is what he says, unless you believe in me, giving up all hope to be saved in any other way, to trust me alone, unless you do that, you're lost. The Bible says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. No wonder the scholars don't like this book. Because listen to what else he says in John 3, 36. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. Father, we thank you. We bow before you. We adore you. We worship and honor you. We don't worship the Bible, but we take this book seriously and literally as a gift from God to us. It's your word written for us. It's a guidebook. It's a roadmap. It's a compass. Talk about survival kit. You have given it to us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. As we prepare to close with this song, He is Exalted, I would encourage all of us just to take this simple chorus with us this week. He is Exalted. It's a simple tune and, and these simple words that just repeat and, and you can bring to your mind over and over. And May it uh, help us just first to remember who Christ is, who God's Word says that He is. And then Help us to remember, secondly, for each one of us who claim Christ as our Savior, who he should be and, and how we should respond to him. He is the Lord forever his truth.